Thank you for joining us for part two discussing the mental and emotional impact of the Swift and Co. raid on some of the children and families affected by this enforcement action. To our returning listeners, welcome back. We truly value your continued support and thank you for amplifying the voices of my Cache County community. If this is your first time joining us, welcome and thank you for listening. As this is part two of episode three in the podcast, we highly encourage you go back and start with episode one to better understand the context of this story and the importance of why we're telling it. Additionally, as we continue to scale this project, we will be creating further educational content across Instagram and TikTok and hope that you can follow along for important resources and messages from us at Solo Eramos Pod. Hello. Throughout this podcast, we will be discussing and sharing unfiltered and sensitive stories about deportation, family separation, racism, and trauma. As we discussed in the previous episode, listening to and discussing stories of trauma can bring forward heavy emotional reactions in ourselves, and engaging with this material in smaller doses can support our own well-being. So please take care of yourself as you see fit. Have you talked about this experience before today? Uh, no. This is the first time I've actually openly talked about it. Just because I feel like there's not that much interest. You don't really find people that, that care as much to talk about, you know. And so, like, and you really don't want to put that information out to anybody. No, no. Con nadie, no. Lo que trata uno es de... Sí, uno está sin papeles, ¿verdad? Pues no, uno nunca sabe a quién, quién le cuenta. Y entre menos personas sepan, pues ya. Son cosas que sí afectan, ¿verdad? Pues... Anything I'm about to tell you, chances are nobody has ever heard. Again, because we bottle it up. I, I've seen a couple therapists and even to this day. And it, it can be any any subject. I will not open up. It's one of the most difficult things. And, it's the, and I think it's just one of those things that was instilled in me at a very young age. Because again, my parents never talked anything out. Es la primera vez que alguien me pregunta acerca de eso. I've briefly talked about it to my mom. She worked at Miller's, um, and she's just, she told me just people were hiding anywhere you could fit a body, and just how they were like, leading people in a line to check their papers, and then to have them sit down in like, the break room or wherever and get that wristband. And then obviously she knew some of the families, right, that were really impacted, and so we've talked about stuff like that very briefly, but I've never gone like deep into it. Maybe I will now. Welcome to Solo Eramos Niños. In today's episode, we will continue to discuss what it can mean to be impacted by the raid through the stories of three individuals. Throughout this episode, we will walk with Francisco, Gloria, and Jonathan as they share their struggles, experiences, thoughts, and feelings of navigating the fallout of the raid and the ways in which they continue forward in the heart of resilience. I'm Angel Lopez. And I'm Shelby Lopez. Empecemos. Okay, I was born in Guadalajara, Jalisco. I grew up there with my parents. They owned a store, and my father, he worked at a company his whole life. That's where he retired from, and well, I grew up, and I got married, and I came to the United States with two children, and here we are. 
my wife, she had all of her sisters over on this side and they would come over here and we would see that they had a better quality of life and they would invite us. And we said, well, let's go. And we decided to come over and they helped us. They opened up their homes and gave us the money for the coyote. And we were there with them for some time while I could find work and afford our own apartment. And here we are just working and finding a way. This is Francisco. Our listeners may recognize him from episode two. Francisco was an undocumented worker at the Miller's plant and was working the day of the raid. With help from a family member and probably some fervent prayer, he was able to make it out of the plant and meet up with his wife in the parking lot. I was born in Mexico with 12 siblings. My parents always worked out in the fields. That's where we were raised together, working out in the field. We moved to Guadalajara. In Guadalajara, I got married, had two children, and came to the United States after three years of marriage. This is where I made my family. This is Gloria, Francisco's wife. After the two met outside of the plant, they rushed home, gathered their children and a few belongings, and then left their home behind. Gloria and Francisco's story, in many ways, is and is not unique. They, like hundreds of other couples and families, were forcibly separated as a result of the raid. This separation was traumatic for them and their children. As you will hear, they experienced fear, sadness, loss, and worry, and they also sought to push forward survive, and provide for their children. I was working. I cleaned homes. My husband called me and let me know that there was a large raid at his place of employment. He was saying goodbye to us. The only thing he told me, well, I could tell he was very nervous and very scared. He told me that there was a raid and that he believed he would be taken away. Knowing that my husband worked at that place, I felt fear, not knowing what could happen. He was the breadwinner for our family. He worked for us. It was very stressful for me to think that my family was going to be torn apart for this reason. I was on my way out, and then I saw my wife, who was showing up with her American friend. They saw me, and I had to put on a brave face so I could hug her. And I told her, let's go, because we won't ever be coming back here again. We were both very afraid. I went over to pick him up. He came and he hugged me, and we left for our home. From there, we had to leave due to fear of immigration coming to find him. I'm not sure what happened, but that day, they didn't take him away. The three months following were even worse than that day because we knew that they were looking for him, but we didn't know when they would arrest him. We knew that they were in search of them. Those who were not arrested that day were arrested later on. It was very stressful, very difficult for our family. For my kids, for him, and for me as well. We no longer had peace or felt safe anywhere. One of my in-laws invited us to stay with them. Another one did as well, and we did. We stayed with one of them for about a week while we found an apartment here in Logan. And I don't know. I really didn't know what to do. But I did find a job working in construction for some time, and it was difficult. I knew that at any moment the police could pull me over because, well, 
one has to drive and get to work on their own accord. And working in construction, you have to drive to different places. But yeah, well, the fear that one feels because you never know when they could pull you over and, well, deport you. But I lasted some time here. It was difficult for me to be paying for my mortgage and renting an apartment at the same time. So we decided to go back home at the three or four months mark because we had thought everything had calmed down. The inevitable happened. Three months later, it was very unsustainable. We were paying on our home, which we were buying, and we were paying rent on an apartment. To be paying rent and on our home, it was very unsustainable. He was arrested when we decided to move back into our home. It was only a week after returning home that they came for him. And it was very traumatic for my kids, and, well, for me too. It was very difficult, but here we are. I think the neighbors were connected with ICE because as soon as I got here at the first week or first few days that we had moved back, immigration had shown up for me. I had just gotten home from work and was taking out a few things out of the trunk of the car. And next thing I knew, I was already in handcuffs. I said, hey, hey, what's going on? Where are you taking me? They said, we're here for you. Don't deny it. I said, no, I don't know. Uh, that's not me. I work in construction. They said, well, is this you? They had me well investigated. They had my whole record from the time I came to the U.S. All the times I've worked with... Well, one needs to have a social security to present it to your employer. And, well, yeah, they said it was me and I saw my photo and I said, well, okay. Then my wife came out and they started to argue with her. When they arrested my husband, that was extremely stressful. My two youngest were present, and the immigration officials started asking me questions regarding my situation, whether I was here in the U.S. legally and practically forcing me to tell him my status, which is so impactful because of the threats that they make. And the fear of leaving my children, that was my biggest fear, that they would leave my children alone. I can't exactly explain how that day felt or how everything completely happened because you're left with so much fear of what can happen. Traumatic events can have a significant impact on memory. Because of survival responses and the overwhelming stress, it can be difficult to recall details of a traumatic event. For some people, memories of trauma may surface involuntarily through painful flashbacks. And for others, even if they try to recall what happened, their memory may be blank. The stress of trauma can distort the way our brains process and store the memory of what happened. And often the memory of what was felt comes much easier and more powerfully than the memory of the events itself. It was very hard for my children, very traumatic. They were so young and they were present when they came to arrest him. They saw all of it happen. After that, I had to work sometimes 14 hours a day to sustain my family. That was the most complicated part. Leaving my children at school or after school when it was so cold outside, only for me to have to go and find how to sustain my family. Despite the distance, despite the circumstances, 
Fear, sadness, and silence connected the couple. They took me to the Cache County Jail. I was there for a few weeks here in Logan, and then they sent me to Ogden. After Ogden, I wanted to uh, open a case because, well, being in jail, they say a lot of things. Yes, you can. No, you can't. Maybe they'll let you stay due to the length of time you've been here. All of that. And I tried to listen. I think there's a lesson in everything. Like we say in Mexico, everything happens for a reason. One being locked up starts to value their liberty more. One has time to reflect. The first moments were extremely difficult, but one goes on and assimilates and has to get used to it. I had time to think, to read the Bible, and to get closer to God. I think everything has a why, and God gave me permission to come back. That's what I had asked of Him, because in Mexico we had already left everything. There was no reason to go back or to make my whole family move out for me. In the last episode, we talked about how all immigration is trauma. That immigrating to another country means leaving behind the life you know. In doing so, there is a loss. In creating a new life in a new country, the life you left behind moves on. It is no simple thing. In fact, it is impossible to go back to the life you had, even if you go back to your country of origin. Just like Francisco says here, there was no life for him and his family back in Mexico. We paid for a lawyer for, well, no reason. They later deported me. They sent me to Arizona, and that's where they deported me from. I was there for three months. From the time they arrested me, I was in jail for about six to seven months. When they saw that I didn't have a case, they offered me voluntary departure. While Gloria worked to keep their family afloat, Francisco prepared himself to once again face the trauma of crossing the border. I had to work twice as much and also basically leave my children home alone, only to basically watch them sleep, wake them up, and get them ready for school. That really affected me, and I know it affected my children too. The way it mentally impacted my family is what harmed my family the most. They had no idea. It was never explained to them the manner in which we were here. So yes, it impacted them a lot. Seeing their father arrested and not even knowing the reasons, going forward, like I mentioned earlier, Fear, constant fear, and always hearing that when you go out, that there's still raids happening. People get stressed and become afraid. I think it's only human for us to feel this after these type of events. Gloria wanted to emotionally support her children, but because of the instability arresting Francisco brought to the family, Gloria didn't have the luxury of time or financial security to be there for her children in the ways she wanted, especially considering her own mental and emotional stress. Hanging over all of this is a cultural stigmatization of mental health in the Latin community. There is a fear that in speaking up about feelings of depression or anxiety, you may be labeled as crazy. For first-generation children, there is a fear that speaking up about traumatic events they have experienced may be brushed aside in the light of hardships experienced by their parents. Or even that saying that you are having a hard time is paramount to ungratefulness for the sacrifices their parents made. 
My children motivated me, knowing that I had the responsibility to ensure that they pushed forward. Also, sending my husband a little bit of money because he mentioned that they didn't give him enough food and that he was always hungry while being detained. I had to work to send little money his way and for my kids and for the bills. My love for my children is what motivated me and gave me strength to move forward. Peace is difficult to find after something like this happens because you're always afraid of what could happen. Well, my wife has always been a hard worker. She found a way to make things move forward. I know she struggled a lot. Imagine, with kids, it wasn't easy. I'm grateful for her. She's always been a fighter and a hard worker. She's what gives me the willpower to always move forward. I owe her a lot. She helped me, and she would tell me that she would do whatever I wanted. Her and the family could come out with me, or we could keep moving forward into the U.S. And as soon as I was out, I decided to find a coyote and come back. Well, I thought about going out to Guadalajara to visit my mom and my siblings and everything. But so much time had gone by. And I don't know, I don't know, could have been pride. But it must have been pride for one to not want to go home and be seen as a failure. Trauma and shame can have an intertwining relationship. Shame can be compounded on top of other difficult emotions that come with trauma, such as fear, sadness, anxiety, and anger. Shame comes with its own risks and can drive people to or exacerbate unhealthy coping mechanisms. It's more likely that people experience shame if the trauma that they have lived through was extremely dehumanizing. Both trauma and shame can impact the way we view ourselves, which can bring forward feelings of being unworthy of love and connection. So I was let out in Nogales. I was there. It wasn't easy, but yeah, they told me about a coyote in town. And I was there for some time, and I saw it was difficult there. People couldn't cross. One thing that discouraged me the most was seeing a group that had arrived barefoot. Their feet were swollen from having been walking all night. I asked them what happened, and they told me that they couldn't cross, and they had to come back, and that immigration had been chasing them, and they walked and walked and got lost, and finally found their way back. They had been saying that it was extremely difficult to get across. They had attempted three times and couldn't find a way. I remember thinking I should find another route, but they didn't want to let me leave. After a few lies, I told them I was going to go buy a few things, and I left and went straight to the bus station. There was a store where they gave you the opportunity to call, and that's where I called my wife and let her know that I would be leaving to California and that I was in Nogales now. And when I got to California, I called her, and she told me that she had already gotten somebody's number, but it was in San Luis, Rio, Colorado. And from there, I took another bus over to San Luis, Rio, Colorado, and was there for a week. The people were very kind. They gave us food while we waited for people to gather so we could all cross together. 
And yeah, the crossing was very easy. This time it wasn't a struggle like the first time when we all crossed together. The first time was more difficult, longer time at the border. We had our kids and everything. And this time was very quick. A person who was supposedly going fishing got us across. He put us in his trailer, covered us with his boat, moved us to another trailer. And from there he got us across Arizona put us in a horse trailer, covered us with blackboard, and took us all the way to California. I don't know if I answered your question about how it had affected my well-being, but yeah, emotionally, one always has the fear of being deported again. As some of you may recall, I briefly mentioned in the first episode that this story was very important to me and close to my heart as my father was taken because of these raids. As Shelby described earlier, the trauma caused by these raids are still felt today. And I know I'm not alone due to the many messages we've received since starting this project with people sharing similar feelings that still come up to this very day. As I sat through the interview, it was incredibly difficult not to see my father's reflection in Francisco's tired eyes. Watching Francisco process, cry, and talk through his feelings took me back to the day when I was told my father had been deported. The same sinking feeling I had in the pit of my stomach returned. And I had to force back tears as I was reminded of the similar sacrifice my parents made for me all those years ago. It's hard not to see my father's journey in Francisco's words, and it was also difficult not to see myself in Jonathan. My name is Jonathan. I grew up here in Cache Valley all my life. I was born in Mexico, went to Logan High just for freshman year. I'm married, and we have a dog, Spike. Jonathan is a dreamer. He was brought to the U.S. as a baby when his parents immigrated here from Mexico. Jonathan had relatives in Cache Valley, so his parents settled and grew their family there. For Jonathan, Cache Valley was the only home he had ever known. And the swift raid was just the beginning of his exposure to ICE and the life-altering fear they left behind. I was in second grade, so I was about eight years old. I remember coming home from school. It was just a normal day at school. And then coming home and getting off the bus stop and seeing my dad home from work. Usually he gets home in the later night around 7 or 8. I thought it was weird. He was there and he was just kind of like waiting for me. Like I said, I was a little taken back because my dad usually isn't home that early, nor does he usually pick me up. As soon as he saw me, he kind of like rushed over to me and heard me in the car. He didn't really feel like explaining anything just yet. I know we rushed home right after that. And we that's when he basically told me a little bit what was going on, why he was home early and why things were, uh, what was actually happening over there at JBS. So my dad, he basically just told me how it was that immigration raided JBS that morning. So my aunt actually worked there and she was caught. So he, he told me that she's in trouble with ICE and we're probably not going to be able to go out for a long time. So basically we'd have to like quarantine until things cool down around here. Also, he told me that uh, I'll still be able to go to school, but just, just to make sure that like if I see any police present to try and get a hold of them. And there's, there wasn't much you could have told me. It's out of your hands at that point. You just kind of have to hope for the best. But he told me just like, whatever happens, like at the end of the day, we'll find a way to be together. So it just kind of left me, especially at that age, not really knowing how to take it in, especially with all the information he was putting at me. I didn't really know what to do with it. The only thing that I was scared was the fact that my life here was probably in jeopardy. When I did go back to school, I wasn't really at school. I was more at home. 
And I was just like worried the whole day at school, like looking out the windows so you could see outside. And I was paranoid that there would be like immigration pulling up. As much as I tried to focus on school, I couldn't. That was just what was going through my mind the whole day. For those who listened to the previous episode about trauma, you hopefully recall when we talked about hypervigilance. What Jonathan is talking about here is a potent example of what trauma and hypervigilance can look and feel like. Jonathan was physically at school, but his mind was miles away at home, and he was constantly looking out for danger, for ice to come and take away the life he knew. When those fear and survival centers in your brain are at the helm, the processes of the upper brain, such as reasoning, problem solving, or planning for the future, are offline. All of this makes it hard for a traumatized student to learn. After we hit for a while, I felt like couldn't really do anything like we used to. Even walking outside felt a little uneasy. But as like the time came along, like we were a lot more careful about where we went. We traveled a lot less just because that was a very like humbling experience having them so close to us. We didn't live that far from JBS, maybe like 10, 15 minutes away. So yeah, we were very careful after that. And I saw my parents move on, but deep down inside, I don't really know how they handled it like after the time passed. But for me, I couldn't really get out of my head. I really felt like my time here was up. I felt alone because being an immigrant is something you kind of don't really talk to anybody about. So I felt like I didn't have anybody to talk to about that. And with my mom, I didn't really want to like stress her out about my worries. I just kept it to myself and just hoped for the best. Life returned to what looked like normal. His parents got new jobs and Jonathan continued through school. But in so many ways, the fear and isolation brought on by the trauma of the raid stayed with him. Two years after the raid at Swift, ICE showed up at his house, and that devastation returned in full force. Two years later, my dad, that's when my dad got, uh, that's when he got arrested by ICE. And unfortunately, it wasn't because of the ICE raid, but I feel like it's still connected in that way, just because uh, they were so quick the response once um he got arrested because they were well he was at work they were at my house just kind of like looking around like going to my backyard and just kind of looking around the house and then leaving which i thought was weird but what sucks is that at the end of the day it wasn't really the jbs raid that got my dad arrested it was a family member who called on my dad their own like problems within the family but um, that's why my dad was arrested with the whole thing of uh, JBS. Like they were all over our house and all over my dad's case. My dad's company let him go when they found out that that he didn't he wasn't legal. So they did let him go. They uh, ICE didn't actually technically arrest him, but they did like I guess you could say like a warrant for his arrest. So my dad did eventually turn himself in, and that's when the court proceedings for him happened. It was very chaotic because like two years after what we thought was probably the end for us too, that was like reliving that all over again. But this time actually being in jeopardy, definitely traumatizing to know it was actually from a family member and not actually ICE themselves, which both are really bad. But yeah, it was super traumatizing too because it was towards the end of school. So I was about to go into middle school and as, as a kid, like you're kind of nervous to go to middle school. So you have that going on. And then my whole dad's courts. Uh, I remember before I, I dropped off at school, uh, we dropped off my dad at the police station where he was going to turn himself in. And then that was, well, that was the last time I saw him because I came home from school. My dad told me, if you don't see me, you know why. I don't want you to get sad. Just know that this is what has to happen right now. And you need to stay strong. Don't freak out. We knew this could happen. 
just try and be there for your mom and your little brothers. So sure enough, now I have that going through that in my head throughout the whole day at school. And then when I came home, I already knew, like I could see everybody's faces. The like the aura was almost like somebody passed away because that's how traumatizing it is. And that was all like the starting of my summer vacation for that summer. Well, it was pretty stressful. That's when like I had to step up and be there for my little brothers because they didn't know what was going on. So my mom actually started working all day. So she'd be working probably like 14, 15 hours. So we didn't have to like lose our house. I was just there for my little brothers when they came home from school, cooked for them, and then did, do whatever they had to do. And that was kind of our life up until we had to lose our house because my mom obviously couldn't afford a, a mortgage by herself. While trauma is universally harmful to a person's well-being at any point in their life, age makes an important difference when it comes to the impact trauma has on the brain. Trauma can have a greater impact while the brain is still developing, and the younger the child is, the more likely that the trauma has a deeper and more long-lasting effect. Furthermore, children and teens don't have the same kind of emotional or social resources to help them navigate the hurt and fear that stems from trauma. Unfortunately, at the time, my dad did lose his mom while he was in jail. So in that same year, he lost his mom in jail. We also lost my grandpa, who he was living with us. He had cancer. I was very sad about both deaths. When I heard about my grandma, I was really sad because I knew that my dad was out to find out in jail. And just kind of have to deal with it because they're not going to let us go and hug him. And then my grandpa, I was very depressed about that too. Because with all the time he spent with us, like he was like a second father to me. And then the sad part was that he was buried in Mexico and I wasn't able to go see him. Me and my mom and uh, my family, we just kind of had to mourn him from here. Yeah, that was, that was a crazy year for us to like lose two important family members. And then along the way also like my dad being taken away from us. At that moment, like, I realized how messed up the world is. I guess I started getting more angry, more frustrated, and I started to get a lot more depressed. It left me kind of, like, in a loop where I didn't really know where my life was going to go. For the most part, you just feel like a target the whole time. For me, it was definitely hard to, like, shake shake that feeling off, feeling like a target, or feeling very, like, scared most days, and kind of wishing things would just be normal. Every day, you're wishing at least at the very least be normal, not so chaotic. My mom, she did her best. I could easily tell that it took a really big toll on her, on her mental health especially, because she wasn't herself. She was very quiet. She's not. She's usually very fun to be around and very funny. But as soon as that whole year was going down for us, she was just depressed. She didn't really want to cook. She did her best to like make us happy, but... It was extremely overwhelming, you know, for her to lose lose her father and her husband. She also wanted to be there for my grandma because my grandma has a lot of health issues. So she also wanted to make sure she was okay. You know, as you can imagine, like her head was all over the place as well. My little brothers, they were just sad. They really didn't know what to make of it at the time since they were so little. My family was just more worried about all of us because we're the only ones who were still immigrants and everybody else, uh, is luckily like they're all they're all citizens here they were just worried about us you know they try and help us out the best way they could and be there for us too because we're basically alone after my dad ended up in mexico and then my mom realized that she couldn't keep the house so we ended up having to move out of the house we moved in with my godmother 
who had space for us to like live for a while until we can figure out things. My dad came back about 10 months later, but I want to say like a year or two after, he was arrested again because his lawyer, she said she would uh, go to a court that they scheduled the day they were going to send him back to Mexico. So she said that she would go for the court for him, but she never showed up. So they had an active warrant for my dad, and we didn't know that until my dad was pulled over for speeding on New Year's Day, and that's when he got arrested. This was, I want to say like, yeah, a year or two after he came back because it was the, the year before I started high school. Yeah. After he did get arrested the second time, this is when my mom just, she told me, because I was at my cousin's house, we were hanging out, and she called me and she said she had to pick me up. She explained to me what happened, and I didn't really tell my family that. I just kind of like left without telling them because I kind of didn't want to have to deal with that again. Because it's, it's not like I didn't want them to be there for me, but it was, I didn't want all the attention. Well, as soon as I went outside, I saw my mom crying and she told me that, you know, we for sure were going to leave to Mexico on her own will this time. And I definitely started crying because I felt like that was it for me. And it definitely took a lot of convincing for my parents to get me on board with me leaving. And after a while, I was okay with the idea of going back to Mexico. I had made my peace with it. I realized that this my life here wasn't going to continue that it was going to continue in mexico i started a brand new life there luckily if it wasn't for my godmother she told my mom that what if she keeps me here and lets me finish out high school and see if there's any way i can get any permanent residency here at first it didn't work i told my, i told my aunt i was okay i just wanted to be with my family at this point i didn't want to have to deal with immigration ever again but after she talked to my mom over and over my mom told me if you do stay it's okay like We'll be okay. I'll be okay knowing that you don't have to live in Mexico. On the bright side, your little brothers, you know, they can come back whenever they want. You won't ever go away without seeing them. Like maybe as soon as you get your green card, you can come visit us. And definitely it didn't it didn't help that she told me that. I still want to go to Mexico. But after I gave it some thought and I realized I didn't want to live in Mexico and I still really wanted to be here with my family. And I didn't want to leave everything, all the memories that I've actually good memories I had here. And so I did end up staying with my aunt and I moved in with her uh, right before I started ninth grade. I didn't really feel as safe anymore. So I always had a hard time after that, accepting how really safe I was here, or how happy I actually could be here. I mean, honestly, my happiest moments were when I was like basically a little kid because every, everything seemed fine. We'd go to California to visit my aunt there. We'd go to Lagoon. We'd go to Salt Lake and to Swamis and our grandparents would join us too and those are the memories like now as an adult I look back on too because I knew in those times I've never felt more safe and comfortable and so to me like those are the best memories and right now we're just kind of like hoping you know like something good happens. Uh, I really wish I had somebody that would help me stay positive. I want to say probably my wife now like if I would have known her back then like maybe she would have at least distracted me with other things and try to keep me seeing more positive and I feel like yeah like she definitely was a big help once we actually met because I met her well halfway into my ninth grade year and so ever since that you know definitely tried to show me that like I have to think so negatively about everything that like another day like something good has to happen I like segregated myself with the other Latino students we had our own like space where we hung out and that's kind of how it played out for the rest of the years but there were, there was a few teachers that definitely like helped us get through high school because they knew that with us being the minority there, it was going to be hard for us. So they definitely, there's a couple of teachers that really helped me out the most, especially like going through what I was going through at the moment. They're there for me a lot.
Jonathan's story emphasizes one of the most important aspects in healing trauma, the importance of relationships. The love, kindness, and support he was shown by his aunt, those high school teachers, and the wonderful person who would one day become his wife helped Jonathan to move out of the shadow of fear and trauma and toward rebuilding and reconnecting his life. I just want to like pretty much give a good shout out to the people who've actually helped me out the most. Again, like those two teachers that I had in Mount Crest, they made it very easy for me and a little bit more comfortable for me to be there. And they really went out of their way to get to high school and graduate. Just basically just want to also say like huge thank you to my wife too, because like throughout high school and now like she's definitely been there with me and tried to, she'd done her best to like help me be more positive and work on my mental health and yeah just especially my aunt my godmother i i don't like see her that often but i do appreciate everything she did for me honestly if it wasn't for her probably wouldn't be talking right now or i wouldn't even be here right now who knows where i would be at because the idea of me going to mexico at the time was it was very real and there's there's honestly nothing i can do to to pay her back for what she did because she definitely like took on a big responsibility and i love her even more for that and i wish her the best you just got to realize that everybody's going to be on your tail from 5 o'clock until the day you die. Whew. That was a lot. The stories that were told today carried the weight of grief and hardships. And as heavy as it is to tell them, it's also heavy to hear. So dear listeners, please take a breath, plant your feet, do something to move your body, and seek and give kindness. In so many ways, these stories represent the hope, hurt, fear, and resilience that many immigrants carry in their own lives and their own stories. To Francisco, Gloria, and Jonathan, we are awed and honored that you've entrusted us with your story. On the next episode of Solo Eramos Niños, we will take a step back to further examine the impact the raid had on the larger Cache Valley community, including taking a deeper look at juxtaposing moments of tension solidarity short term right it was just there was no contact like the community had a, a massive distrust in logan because of what had happened and then, then the paranoia that started after that yeah i think early on they just had a massive distrust for the community it's hard to kind of gauge what the interactions were like because the stores were empty like it was dead empty hasta la próxima Solo Eramos Niños was written, produced, and edited by Angel Lopez and Shelby Lopez. Music by Chris Illig. Cover art by Alexis Rausch. A special thank you to Myra Guadarrama for voiceover and translation support. Keep up with this story and others like it by subscribing to Solo Eramos Niños wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate and review and follow along with us on Instagram at Solo Ramos Pod. 